Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Did 20th century British author J.B. Priestley see the future in some way? How did he use time slips and other multidimensional, multiversal ideas, I should say, in his work? Did he, or we for that matter, get it right? Hello and welcome to the 777th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON, 1240 AM and 99.3 FM as well and our 11th year on the air. And that's a lot of sevens in there. It must be a very well, lucky we'll show. Well, we'll fix that next week. Well, uh, well, well let's, let's say the show is very lucky. Right. Uh, I'm Ben and those timely questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal and dad, Paul. And today we bring you one of our favorite guests for a look at an intriguing author not overly familiar to many Americans. And uh, if you'd like to be part of the show, you can give us a call today. Uh, that is 401-766-1240 from anywhere. Or if you are afraid of talking on the phone, email at paulatbehindtheparanormal.com or send us a message via Facebook. Coming to us via Skype from the United Kingdom is Anthony Peake. Anthony is a pioneering researcher in the realm of consciousness studies, bringing in quantum mechanics and neurochemistry. He is the author of 10 books and co-author with several very distinguished colleagues of two others. His approach is always to apply science to the mysterious and the enigmatic. His latest book on the time plays and time theories of the 20th century British author J.B. Priestley is the subject of our discussion today. The book, Time in the Rose Garden, Encountering the Magical in the Life and Works of J.B. Priestley, the website, Anthony Peak, that's Peak with a K, uh, E, I should say, Anthony Peak with an E, dot com. So, Anthony Peak, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. As always, it's great to be talking to you guys. Well, hey, it's great to have you back. It's always a good show whenever we have you. So, Anthony, let's start off uh, by having you tell us about J.B. Priestley, uh, his work, his ideas, uh, 25 words or less. <laughs> He's kidding. Okay. <laughs> I can try, I can try. It's like something Monty Python many years ago was saying, Praceying Proust, so I can <laughs> do the same kind of thing. I remember thing. that. Yeah. yeah, it was very, very good, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> right, so how to praise J.B. Priestley. J.B. Priestley was, um, in my opinion, probably one of the most neglected intellectuals of the 20, 20th century. Um, he was born in a, a middle-class family in Bradford in the north of England, um, and he then fought in the First World War. Uh, after he left, um, after he was demobbed, he managed to get a place at Trinity, Col Trinity Hall, Cambridge, Cambridge University. Um, and while he was there, he started to, to really get very interested in, in consciousness and time and time perception. And in fact, while he was there, he was influenced by somebody called John McTaggart, which we can possibly put into. But what he did then was he had a very, very successful novel called The Good Companions, which came out in 1929. And from then, his, his reputation was, create, was created as a popularist writer of a kind of a picaresque type novels. But it was around about the early 1930s when he decided he would start writing plays because he realized that if you can write novels, you can write plays. And he came out with a fascinating first play called Dangerous Corner, which we'll also touch upon. He then, ever since he was a child, he'd been fascinated by the nature of the relationship between consciousness and external reality and what we mean by time. And one of the quotes that really I think is very important in terms of understanding the worldview of J.B. Priestley is the opportunity I'm going to take now to just do a very small quotation from uh, T.S. Eliot, 
who was the uh, was Anglo-American and everything else. So he's a very interesting poet. And in Burns Norton, number one of his four quartets, he wrote, Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is irredeemable. And this is exactly what Priestley did, and he did a series of fascinating plays uh, in the late 1930s, early 1940s, which are popularly known as his time plays. But uh, he then moved on, and he started to do some fascinating writing, even in the 1950s, when he was writing science fiction stories, which a lot of people aren't aware of. And these science fiction stories are absolutely incredible. You know, as you guys know, I've written the latest biography of um, Philip K. Dick, the American science fiction writer, mm. and I put these guys, to, these two guys, in parallel. The thing is that Philip K. Dick, everybody knows Philip K. Dick and how wonderful his writing was, whereas people just don't re appreciate just how brilliant Priestley was. So my book, when I brought it out, I was determined to try and revisit this guy's work and open it up to a much wider audience. And this is the opportunity I'm taking now to talk to an American audience about somebody that you may not have heard of. Very good. Okay, well, can you, uh, Anthony, tell us some of... The time theories, you know, get into some of those and give us some examples of how he uses them in his work. Of course, of course. As I said, he was very influenced by uh, John McTaggart, Ellis McTaggart, who was a philosopher who was at Cambridge at the same time that Priestley was doing his degree there. And Priestley used to go to McTaggart's lectures. And McTaggart used um, very, very clever logic to say that the time is an illusion that time doesn't exist and it was quite an intriguing idea he said that there are two types of time that we appreciate and we understand time to be the first type of time is he called series a and that's it that there's there's the past the present and the future and that something occur is is in the future it then becomes the past and then becomes uh, becomes the present and then becomes the past now as mctaggart argued the past has gone, so it doesn't exist anymore. The future is yet to occur, so therefore doesn't exist. And the only thing that really exists is that split second or that moment that's the nexus when the future becomes the past. Okay? He also said there's a second type of, um, of time that we understand, which is basically just, he called it series B, which is just earlier and later. But the thing is that Earlier and later are static things, whereas time flows, as uh, Marcus Aurelius said. So really, the idea of earlier and later don't work. But so it doesn't, past, present and future doesn't work, because it effectively means that a particular incident takes place either in the future or the present or the past. It can't be in all three. Now, it's a very, very tortuous way of looking at this, but it made Priestley start to think, well, what really is time? And then in the uh, late 1920s, um, a very popular book at the time came out, and it was written by an Anglo-Irish aeronautical engineer called uh, J.W. Dunn. And Dunn wrote a book called Experiment with Time. And in Experiment with Time, I've, I don't know, I've yet to make the link whether Dunn was aware of McTaggart, but he comes up with something similar. And his argument is that if time flows like a river flows, there has to be a way that we measure the flow of time. So, for instance, if you're standing next to a riverbank and you're seeing the river flowing by, the reason you know that the river is flowing 
is because you can see the river flowing relative to your riverbank and the riverbank opposite. So you need something to measure time flow against. Now, as uh, Don said, there isn't any anything we can gauge time against. There is no riverbank. Time flows against something, but what is it? And he argued there must be another time that the present time is, is measured by. He called that time two. So there's time one which we experience and there's time two. But he then argued that there is part of our own psychology and our subconscious that probably exists in time two. Now, any of you guys that know my work will know this is very much my argument that there's the Edelon, which is the everyday self, and there's the daemon, which is our own higher self, who can perceive a broader amount of time perception, be it minutes, hours, days in the future. Now, he then, Priestley was so fascinated by these these ideas, and if anybody wants to read up on J.W. Dunn, J.W. Dunn had a series of precognitive dreams that took place in 1902 and for, for some time afterwards. And he was so intrigued by these, he actually, in his book, uh, An Experiment with Time, he suggested that people have a, bed, uh, have a notebook by their bedside. Because he argued that all our dreams, or many of our dreams, are precognitive, but they're actually... Actually, I do that. <laughs> very sensible idea, and you will find, won't you, that a lot of what happens is that your dreams contain elements of the future, but they're actually garbled in with everything else and with other things from the subconscious. But if you take those salient details, you'll find you'll start to experience them. It's as if we can perceive the future before it happens. Now, Priestley was intrigued by this, and he had a series of experiences in his life, which I discuss in great detail in the book, that he believed that he could perceive the future. He had a term he called future influencing the past, as if an event in the future resonates back in time to be perceived by your earlier self. And again, this is Philip K. Dick, you know, in Philip K. Dick's work, he argued this all the time. In Philip K. Dick's exegesis, he discusses this. So this is an intriguing idea, and he wanted to try and get it across to a general audience. So what he did was, he actually decided to write a play and he wrote this fascinating play called Time and the Conways. And in Time and the Conways, if you ever get to see this play, it will blow your mind. It really will. It is so neglected. Um, the concept is, it's 1919, and there are a group of people in London. It's a kind of a dinner party, and it's the, the, the Conway family. And you get to know in the first act the members of the family. And you discover that they're very optimistic. The First World War has ended. Britain, the British Empire has won the First World War with the assistance of the Americans, of course. And they're looking forward to the future. And they're discussing about selling their house, making money from the house, how their investments are going to go. It's also Kay Conway's, I think it's her 21st birthday, who's the central character. And she has a brother and three sis and two sisters. Maybe three sisters. That's two, I think. Anyway, she, at the end of the first act, she, she goes into another room, and you see her do this, and then she seems to go into some altered state of consciousness. And she goes into a dream state, and the curtain comes down, and everybody goes for their break and everything. You have your, your drink and everything. You come back into the theatre, and, and it comes up, and it's the same room as the end of the first act. But it's different in the sense that the clothing is different and the, 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 the setup of the room is much more austere. And you realise that it's about 1937. So it's around about 20 years, 18, 20 years in the future. 
But of course, in theatre, this is just a device that is used. You know, time, one act is one time, the next act is the second time. But there are things that the audience should subtly pick up when you notice that Kay reacts curiously to things people say. She, she reacts as if she's not quite sure that that's correct or, or she feels there's a resonation there, as a recognition of the things that are being said. And you realise that what is happening is that Kay, well, you don't know at that time if you don't know the play, so I won't ruin it for you, but then that act ends and you get to hear what happened to her family. I won't ruin the storyline, but how the story panned through the, in the previous ten years. You then, the curtain comes down, you're in the third act, curtain comes up, and you're back, Kay's coming too, back in 1919. And you realise that the second act was in fact a precognitive dream she's had. And it's how she deals with the realisation that she knows what's going to happen to the other characters. It's incredibly clever. I won't ruin it for you. But I, I spoke in the National Theatre in London uh, ten years ago in front of um, an audience before a production of this particular play. And I was on stage with Professor Jeff Forshaw, one of Britain's top quantum physicists. And we were discussing time. And I was intrigued when I saw the production that was put on 10 years ago on the National Theatre because they did some very, very clever effects. Like they did one effect, which I thought was fascinating, because one of the things that Priestley was intrigued by was the implication of Minkowski's idea of block time. The idea that time can be sliced. Each individual moment is an individual moment. And we go from moment to moment, but each one time is static. So it's like a loaf of bread. And each incident in your life is like a slice of bread and you move from one to the other. And Rupert Gould, who was the director, this wonderful way of getting the idea across. And what he did was he had the main actress taking off Kay lean against a fireplace. And then he had a strobe light. And what he did was he had about 20 different actresses standing behind her, all in slightly different positions. And the strobe light focuses on each one of them in turn. And you get the stroboscopic effect like you get with a cartoon of movement. Mm -hmm. But each but each one of them was, was static. And it really gave you the realisation of what the central thesis of this idea of block time is. The play is absolutely wonderful. It discusses in great detail a lot of the issues of, of, of how time works and how the feeling and the sensations of time works. But this wasn't the only influence on Priestley. He wrote, he had two time plays on at the same time in London in 1937. The other play was called I Have Been Here Before. Now this is even curiouser because it was influenced by a Russian emigre philosopher called Peter Ospensky. Oh yes. Okay, so you know the work of Ospensky. Now again, here we have this genius of a man taking obscure ideas and putting them on a play and a stage in London for the masses to watch. And in this play, there's a character, Professor Gortler. It's, it's set in an inn in Yorkshire. And this character, Gortler, turns up in the inn. And when he first turns up, he asks the landlord, is there a room available tonight? And there wasn't. And he goes, oh, I'm early. And as the play progresses, you realise that Gortler is somebody who is doing what Ospensky writes about, and I write about in my work, is that we, we, all, we all live not one life, but multiple lives of our own life. And Gortler is a character who's lived his life many times, and he's gone back 
into one of his previous lives to stop a couple making a terrible bad decision that would destroy so many lives. And it's his role in the play is to do this. Now again, Ospensky very much had these ideas of of, 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 of the idea of the eternal return, the eternal recurrence. But he does it in such a clever way. You know, it's a bit arch in its, its stylization a little bit, but it's very clever. And then the third play he does, which is not really one of his time plays, which he wrote before the, the Second World War, but really was, was only produced, I think, soon afterwards, was a, a play that was only performed maybe half a dozen times, maybe a little bit more, because it was so expensive. But it was actually written in 1930, or published first time in 1939, called Johnson Over Jordan. And Johnson Over Jordan is about a near-death experience. The scene opens, and it's, it's um, a situation whereby there's a funeral going on. And you see all the people on the stage in the funeral. And then there's one character wandering around looking completely lost. And nobody's reacting to him. And it's his funeral. He's the guy who's died. And he's literally in the Bardo state. And he's in this kind of world between worlds where he can go back into his own past and he can observe what's going on in this reality. Again, incredibly clever because the sequences where he goes back into his own past to the, the incidents that made him who he is. In many ways, there's a lot of elements here of um, Dickens's play um, A Christmas Carol, but it's much, much cleverer. But the ideas just flow out of it. And these plays, as I say, were all influenced precisely by Priestley's own beliefs and his own experiences. Go ahead, Ben. Oh, uh, well, actually, I, I was going to bring up kind of a question um, about his beliefs of precognition. So, I mean, it seems as if the general consensus, well, kind of, is is that time is linear-ish or, or kind of like an extra-linear um, Sort of, sort of, sort of thing. Flows like a river, but you know, rivers divert, move all over the place, kind of, kind of thing. Um, this kind of begs, begs the question: if, if precognition is, you know, seeing into the future or sort of being in the future already, do we actualize it ourselves by participating in it already? A very interesting and a very pertinent point in that in my, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Labyrinth of Time. And in that I discussed the physics and the philosophy and the neurochemistry of, of time perception and how time perception works. Now, if you look into um, quantum physics, you will come across something called collapsing the wave function, which is the, the idea that the act of observation or the act of measurement collapses a statistical wave function into a point particle which is located in one particular position or another. Mm. And depending upon the statistical probability, the height of the probability will depend on where the, the particle is, is, is found. But effectively, and this is pure, this is genuine quantum physics, before the particle exists, it exists everywhere. It is in every location. And what happens is the act of observation makes the particle choose to be in one place or another. Now, again, this may sound crazy, but it is, it is known quantum physics. I mean, for instance, there is um, uh, something called quantum, uh, not quantum leaping, but um, quantum jumping, which is the reason why the sun shines. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here, but the way the fact the sun shines is because this is how subatomic particles work. And the fact is that some subatomic particles 
can, for instance, if you have a group of subatomic particles in a box, there is a very, very small statistical chance that one of the subatomic particles will be outside the box. Because statistically, it might be a billion, billion to one chance, but it may be. But because there are so many subatomic particles, effectively, this is what happens in the sun. Um, because there is just so many of them. So the idea is that everything that we perceive is in this kind of state of becoming. And it only becomes actualized when it is perceived or measured by a sentient being, whether it's measured by a machine, uh, who knows? But this is the central thesis of uh, the central issue of the famous thought experiment, Schrodinger's cat. Sure. Because mm. this is exactly what Schrodinger was trying to do when he was trying to get across his ideas that the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics was utterly ridiculous. And he came up with this thought experiment to show it was utterly ridiculous. Now, many, many times in quantum physics, quantum physicists have come up with thought experiments to say, this shows how utterly ridiculous things are. And lo and behold, the very action, and this intrigues me, the very action of them thinking about this analogy that shows it's ridiculous, brings the actual existence of a universe where that analogy is actually found to be real. Now, we know this happened with Schrodinger, but we also know it happened with Einstein. In the late 1930s, Einstein, with two associates, Pondolsky and Rosen, came up with another thought experiment called the EPR paradox. And again, it was to make out that the whole idea of the Copenhagen interpretation was utter nonsense. But lo and behold, many years later, in 1964, an Irish physicist called John Bell did the maths to prove that Einstein was wrong. And then in 1981, Alain Aspect at the University of Paris Division of Optics actually proved that Einstein's ridiculous analogy was in fact what was real. And what that is, is that subatomic particles, however far apart they are, if they have been in the same quantum state and they are sent in different directions, if you do one to one particle, the other one reacts instantaneously. Now, not only this, but I was surprised to discover I... Um, in my own podcast, I, I interviewed a lady called Dr. Jude Curvin, who's a cosmologist, a few weeks ago. And I was reading her latest book, and in this she gives examples, and I've now checked up the academic papers on this, that they now theoretically believe that the distance, at a minimum, is 500 light years. Now, anybody who knows anything about physics and cosmology will know effectively if you are affecting a subatomic particle that's 500 light years away, you're actually affecting something that didn't, has not existed for 500 years. Mm. Yeah. So suddenly we can influence the past. So when Priestley says the future influencing the past, which I touched upon before, suddenly that makes sense. And this is again a classic example of just how far in advance Priestley was of the curve. Wow. <laughs> exactly. Let, let's move now to what I think might be a logical <coughs> question, and that has to do with the nature of time. Is it objective or, or, or is it subjective? I mean, we have touched on that, but I'm thinking particularly of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, of, um, of our break in about a minute. <laughs> I'll start the question. I'm thinking of Einstein's uh, book Relativity, written in 1952, of course, uh, groundbreaking and uh, earth-shattering scientifically. Uh, the theory of relativity, uh, essentially is saying more or less that, that time does not ob exist objectively, but is a function of our consciousness. And you're the man to address that, that very issue. What is the notion in, in this literature or any, anywhere else of past, present, and future 
uh, how objective is it really? And if it's all simultaneous, what would be the implications of that? Actually, we're going to take the, we're going to take our break right now. We'll give uh, uh, Anthony a chance to think about that. But you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, 99.3 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We will be right back with Anthony Peake. We've been talking about Internet-targeted advertising. Now, let's talk about TV. The television industry is more competitive than ever, with media companies like Netflix and Hulu disrupting viewership patterns and causing the big networks to rethink their marketing strategies for the new fall TV lineup. So, what drastic measures did ABC, CBS, and Fox do to drive viewership? They invested heavily in radio. You got it. Television's turning to radio to promote their products. The last week of September, ABC, CBS, and Fox were three of the eight biggest spenders on radio. Really, it shouldn't come as a surprise, as radio reaches 93% of the U.S. population on a weekly basis. Let's put the power of radio to work for you. Even television owners know, with radio, you don't have to see our ads to get results. Owen Radio! And welcome back behind the paranormal. Our subject today, consciousness, time, and quite a few other things. And our guest, Anthony Peak, pioneering researcher in consciousness from the UK, joining us via Skype. So, uh, did we get that question in? I guess just just in time before the break, Anthony. And uh, could you uh, yep. respond? No, absolutely. There are, there are quite a few issues that come out of this. Now, the first one is something I referred to earlier on was Minkowski's concept of block time. Now, the reason well, not the reason I believe, the reason that historians of science believe that Einstein came up with some of his conclusions in his wonderful year of his three papers in 1905 was that his teacher was a guy called Hermann Minkowski. And Minkowski was the first person to come up with this concept of block time. You know, the, the, the idea I was talking before about the slices of bread and that time is, is, is more of a solid and it's something we travel through, but it's 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 already out there and it already exists. Now, recent research, um, the the uh, late British physicist Stephen Hawking, um, in one of his last papers, he did he wrote a series of papers with um, a fellow researcher called Thomas Hertog, uh, from I think the University of Nijmegen, I think, but he's uh, Hertog very much works at CERN, and they were concluding that that this is what happens that. The future is already there. We perceive, we travel through it, and we we create a future from our own actions. But it's already there, and it, it is in potential. It's potentiality. Now, on top of this, there is another quantum physicist called John Kramer, who's an American quantum physicist, and he has argued that effectively time flows both ways. Time flows from the future into the past and the past into the future. And how he argues this, and it's very intriguing, he argues that um, positrons, which are positively charged electrons, antimatter in effect, are literally electrons traveling backwards in time. Now, if this is the case, there are kind of two alternate realities, one running backwards in time and one running forwards in time. But if Time is literally just a reflection of the second law of thermodynamics, the idea that everything is just moving towards entropy and it's moving to disorder. It doesn't matter which direction time is traveling as far as, 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 as subatomic particles are concerned. 
In fact, it doesn't matter. The flow of time, the direction of time does not matter. What we confuse is time with entropy. We, dis- we confuse time with things going from a state of order to a t- state of disorder. You know, effectively, you have a cup of coffee and it's hot. As, as it becomes more disordered, it loses the heat and it becomes cold. You smash an egg on a floor, you know, it's gone from an ordered egg into a disordered mess on the bottom of your floor. Now, interestingly, this is wonderful because it segues in to something, again, very intriguing about J.B. Priestley. And do you mind if I go off on a slight tangent here? No, by all means. Okay, okay. I met up with J.B. Priestley's son, Tom, uh, before a performance of one of J.B. Priestley's other plays, which are not particularly interesting for me, but they're still great vignette pieces called When We Are Married. And Tom... Because I was doing this event in London, um, I needed to meet Tom. And when I met Tom, we had a long chat about my writing and my interests. And Tom was quite fascinated. By the way, Tom Priestley, his son, was the guy that was responsible for the sequence in the movie Deliverance. Do you know the dueling banjo sequence? Uh, I'm sorry to say I've never seen Deliverance. Okay. Everyone else has, though. Oh, right. I'm sure everybody out there will be nodding about this. It's a wonderful sequence in a movie, Deliverance. Um, Tom was the guy behind that idea of the the kid with the banjo and everything. But just to decide, and actually he was nominated for an Oscar. I think he won an Oscar, I think, for the soundtrack or the editing of that Hmm. movie. But anyway, Tom tells, tells me, he said, do you know, my father would be very interested in your work, but I think there's something you'd be really interested in. He said, do you remember in 1963... Uh, when he was on, no, 1962, when he was on the Monitor TV program. And because I'd been researching his work, I knew. And what happened was Priestley was on a British TV program in March of 1962. And at the end of the program, he was discussing his interest in time and precognitions and the way time flows and everything else, all the things we've been talking about now. He was on a TV program talking about this in the early 1960s. That's how advanced he was and how brave he was. Mm. Okay. During the program, Hugh Weldon, who was doing the program, says, turns to the TV audience, says, if anybody out there has had odd effects to do with time, can you re- please write to us and we will forward it to, to Mr. Priestley. Priestley was going to expect to get 100 or maybe 200. He got literally thousands of these letters. And of the thousands of the letters, around about 20 or 30 of them, appeared in his 1964 book, Man and Time. And they're fascinating. And one of them, which I'll come on to in a second, was a particular example of of how this is. Now, Tom then turned around to me and said, I found the letters in my father's bedroom, and I had no use for them. So I I donated them to Cambridge University Documents Library. Would you like to read them? Would you like to go up? I can facilitate you to be able to read these letters. Wow. And I did. I, I went up for a week and I went to the documents library where they have the incredible documents there. And when I, I had the boxes and I opened them and I could still smell Priestley's pipe smoke. Oh it was incredible. Now, <laughs> around about five percent of these letters had been written, had been read by previous academics, including one of the academics who wrote one of the forwards to my book. But I'm the only person that's read around about two thirds of them. And I spent a week going through these letters and some of the events that ordinary people describe you would not believe. These are events written by people, ordinary people in the early 1960s in the UK who have had had experience they could not explain. I'll give one example. 
1952, there was a guy on holiday in Dorset with his wife. They were on a camping holiday. Now, Dorset's in the southwest of England. Mm-hmm. The plan was, on their way home, they would go to the Farnborough Air Show, which is a big air show that takes place every year in the UK. And in those days, with the Cold War being on, it was the way the British showed that they had the latest jets and everything else to scare the Russians and everything else. Now, on the Thursday night, the guy's wife has a dream. And when she wakes up on the Friday morning, she says, we can't go there. There's going to be an awful disaster. And she described in detail in the dream, she was at the air show and she saw a plane fly over. And she said it was a a distinct silver plane. And it had a very distinct shape and it flew over and it went through the sound barrier and then it disintegrated and bits of the plane came down and people were killed. People, it was horrific. And she said, then I woke up. I cannot go. Being a man, he talked around mm-hmm. <laughs> and they ended up going to the show. So there, there, there they are on the Friday afternoon, wherever it is. And she suddenly grabs his hand. And she goes, oh, my God, it's that plane. The plane that came over was the de Havilland 110, commonly known as the Sea Vixen. It was a very distinct shape. And it was being flown by a guy called John Derry, who was one of Britain's top test pilots and his associate pilot, a guy called Tony Holland, I think it was. Anyway, the plane goes over and as it gets closer and it goes through the sound barrier and then he turns around and says, no, you're wrong. You said distinctly in your dream that plane was black. And and remember, nobody else has read this letter except for me. So I know this letter. Okay, And it says he said it's black. And you said it was black. No, you said the plane was silver. Sorry. That plane is black. It's not the same plane. And she said, oh, my God, you're right. It's not. And she said, oh, so relieved. The plane lands. Derry gets out. He's fine. No problem. They go home the next day. And you can check this out, by the way, because it's on Pathé News. You can actually check this on YouTube. Okay. Mm -hmm. The next day, breaking news, awful disaster at Farnborough Air Show. Derry and Holland were killed. The plane disintegrated in exactly the way she described. The engines came down and they crashed and they killed around about 24, 28 people they killed. Okay. Okay. Now, the interesting thing, and this is what sends shivers up my spine, is that... I checked up on this. What happened was on the Friday when Derry had landed the plane, I, I work for I work for airlines. I have worked for airlines, and my wife's an aviation consultant. So there's a term: a plane goes tech. There's something wrong with it. You can't fly it. So what Derry and Holland did was they flew back to the uh, to, I think it was Cardington or somewhere in Bedfordshire, and they flew the next day the prototype. The prototype had not been painted. It was silver. Mm-hmm. It was the prototype that crashed. Now, she distinctly said she saw a silver plane. I, my hypothesis on this is it was a Dunn dream, a J.W. Dunn that I mentioned earlier yes. on. Yeah. J.W. Dunn argued that when you have these precognitive dreams, you're not dreaming the events. You're dreaming the first time you come across hearing about the events. What happened was she saw the photographs on the newsreel. She saw the plane and it was black and it was silver. She wasn't remembering the Earth show. She was remembering reading about it in her own future. Okay. now just going back to the whole back thing about time. One of the letters that I've got. In fact, I've got it sitting in front of me because I have this letter. I photocopied it. 
there's a young lady who was staying in a place called Dunraven Castle. And she writes to Priestley and she said the weirdest thing happened to her when she was younger. She was working as a maid in the castle. Uh, it was a hotel. And she said one evening the the sous chef or somebody came in and they had either a mug of coffee or, or something in their hand. And it fell out of their hand and it smashed on the floor. So what you then had was, you know, the whole idea of entropy. You have mm-hmm. order. It smashes on the floor. It's in bits. You can't put it back together again. And then she said she watched in horror as the pieces of, of, of shard pieces flew back off the floor, landed back on the tray, and the person walked backwards out through the door, and the mm. door was closed. She watched time go in reverse. Now, this is an ordinary woman. This is not a woman that's in there to making things up. She wrote a letter to J.B. Priestley. She did not say anything more. And the final letter, which I must mention, and I've not mentioned this in any interview, so this is a bargain for you guys. Well, thank you. There was a lady, uh, I don't call people's names because they may still be alive, and I have checked a few of them, and I have found one or two of the individual's children on these letters, because I want, in my book, I have the whole last section of the book is about these letters with some of them. But there was a lady that she had, she'd had a really vivid dream one night, and she was in the hypnopompic state, which you know I've written about. The hypnopompic state Mm -hmm. is when you're about to wake up. You're in a deep sleep, and you start coming to, and the dreams impose themselves into consensual reality. It's as if you're dreaming, but you're awake. And she hears a door slam, and it was the door slamming that woke her up. She's lying in bed with her husband, and she said to him, it was the five boys coming in from the pictures. Her husband turned around to her and says, whose boys? She goes while she was still, so she said, oh, they're ours. And he was astounded by this and thought she was going crazy. Mm-hmm. Because the issue was that at that time, she was told that they couldn't have children. So the chances of having five boys was ridiculous. And having that number of boys was completely crazy. And she started to come out of the dream and she said, no, it must have just this weird dream. The weird thing is, is that she ended up having five boys. They found the <laughs> And she had five boys. And then one evening, a few weeks before the date of the letter, so literally just before she wrote to them, the five boys were out of the house together. They'd gone to see something called a Brooke Bond TV film show. A film show. And they'd gone out to the pictures. And she's living, she, she's lying, she's sitting down, semi asleep, waiting for them to come home. The door slams, they come through, and she turns around to her husband, who's sitting next to her, and goes, Oh, that's the boys, they're back from the pictures. And then he said, That's what you said to me 13 years ago. Now, how can you explain that unless there's something odd with time? The time when we are in liminal states, it's something called the specious present. Um, Philosophers have called specious present. One of your very famous American uh, psychologists, uh, uh, William James, called the term specious present. The idea is that we can perceive parts of our own immediate future. And I use the argument in my example. For instance, there's an effect. If you're in an, an underground car park, and somebody parks a car in front of you and they slam the car door. Okay? Something fascinating takes place there, which is not explicable no, using normal knowledge of perception. If the car is more than 60 yards away, you hear the sound after the car door slams. Because, yes. of course, t- it takes time for the, the sound to get to you. 
And of course, the image gets to you quicker because light travels much quicker than sound. Mm -hmm. But that's over 60 yards. If it's under 60 yards, there is no time delay. You see the two things happen concurrently, which effectively means that the brain buffers information so it has the whole picture, so it can give you the feeling of a simultaneity. This is a known effect. Dean Radin has done research on this. Dean Radin from IONS. They've done research on this, and he did he did work with um, a guy called Dick Bierman in 19, the late 1990s. And they did experiments with people, and they proved that people, they did it with skin conductance. Apparently, if you are nervous or there's something that's disturbed you, the electrolytes in your skin kick up. And what they did was they had a series of people going through a series of photographs. And they would all be photographs of kittens and clouds and everything that was nice. And then one of the, and then what had happened was, consistently, if one or two of the pictures in the person's future was of a horrific incident, because that's what they did, they put horrific photographs in, the people's skin conductance would go up three or four seconds before the photograph was shown, which means they were monitoring the contents of their own future and as one of the reviewers said then this is like a sequence from the latest tom cruise film hmm. um uh, minority report like precogs yeah now we now know there's a guy called dylan haynes who's doing research in germany at the moment and they know now up to six seconds we are up to six seconds behind what is happening in external reality mm-hmm Six seconds. And again, if nobody believes me on this, go onto YouTube and look up Dylan Haynes and look up somebody called Marcus de Satoy. S-A-U-T-O-Y. Marcus de Satoy. He's a British philosopher mathematician. And he goes over to Dylan Haynes's uh, experimental unit in Germany. And he's shown how he thinks he's making decisions. And the parts of the brain that make your hand move to make the decision, the intention to flex had already been triggered six seconds before he actually felt that he'd made the decision to move. Weird. Yes. I mean, I've actually... I know I know exactly what you mean. It's um, it's actually really fascinating. I oddly learned about this through, through psychoacoustics, kind of by accident. Um, there was a very fascinating... Well, you can actually still buy it. It's, it's basically a disc set. It's called Golden Ears. And um, it's made, it was made by this guy named Dave Moulton, who came up with these, you know, sort of acoustical exercises you could do with headphones on where you could basically pinpoint different frequencies. And I learned in one of the first audio courses I ever took that your brain can essentially trick you into hearing things that don't exist simply because the pattern should exist, or at least your brain thinks so. And that kind of led me into, you know, thinking about this. Um, there's all sorts of weird sort of occurrences that happen every day that you don't think about. Like there, Like a few months ago, actually about a year ago, I was I was driving to work and I was late and uh, I was I was speeding up and I was like I'm probably gonna get pulled over. Five seconds later, I got pulled over. So <laughs> so it's one of those it's one of those things where it's a practical application of something that you know you, you just don't think about. And it's definitely one of those things that's like a reaction where it may seem like oh well you're just overthinking it, but it's 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 actually a scientific and philosophical reason for why these things exist and. It's interesting putting it into, you know, um, tangible reality, saying that there is a reason these things exist rather than it's just, oh, well, one of those things, which yeah. which kind of leads me to this, is is what we perceive, do we perceive it as order when it's in fact chaos, or is it 
you know, or do we perceive chaos when it's in fact ordered? Is there an order to all of this? Again, a huge question in terms of both philosophy and perception studies, uh, quantum physics and various other areas, because the very fact of how we perceive external reality, the way in which external reality is presented to our senses by our, by our brain, presented to whom or what within our consciousness is a million dollar question. But what happens is, of course, external reality, it's, it's not... Time is part of the external reality we perceive, but we know that when we go into altered states of consciousness, when you have a near-death experience, when you get given a shock, everything, time seems to slow down. And again, Priestley talks about this many times in a lot of his own non-fiction writing, the idea that time becomes elastic depending upon circumstances. Again, Priestley himself gives an example when he had his own time slip when he saw his wife had gone, he'd gone to sleep, and his wife, his then wife, Jaquetta Hawks, was sitting opposite him. And he saw her get up and walk out the room, and then he saw her get up and walk out the room again. Now, is this to do with how our, the way in which our brain is perceiving things? It has to place things in time. In other words, there was one joke that somebody made many years ago, is time is the thing that makes sure that everything doesn't happen at once. <laughs> But if time is is a construct of the brain, and this is not as strange as it may seem, um, again, I strongly advise that if anybody is interested in the, the philosophy and science of this, to check out the work of somebody called Julian Barber, who is um, a, a British physicist who wrote a book called The End of Time around about 15 or 20 years ago. Or did he? He could have written it yesterday or he could have been writing it now. Who knows? Um, exactly. <laughs> So, again, one of the big problems with writing books on time is your grammar goes to hell <laughs> because mm -hmm. you're trying to write grammatically, but you're talking about these concepts that grammar doesn't work for, mm, which, again, right. is a, bil a billion-dollar question, is that, I mean, one of the things I studied at university was the Saper-Whorf hypothesis, the idea that language, our language in some way frames the way we perceive reality. Exactly. Now, it, so, you know, if, if your grammar... Is, is the kind of grammar that has past, present, and future, you'll perceive past, present, and future. But if your grammar is different, you will perceive it in different ways. Now, again, the movie, uh, I love movies. Now, I'm thinking the movie, um, oh, the one where they're in contact with a, is it, it's not Interstellar. Uh, it's the, the one where the aliens land. Oh, the arrival. Contact. Arrival. Yes. That's the Saper-Wolf hypothesis. Film. The whole issue of trying to communicate with the aliens, because they speak in that kind of circles of smoke, that's the Saper-Wolf hypothesis. She's an expert on the Saper-Wolf hypothesis, and I was delighted in that movie when I heard, for the first time ever, this concept being discussed in, in, in a blockbuster movie. But again, using the analogy of time, and it, it's again wonderful how these things come round in terms of the discussions we're having here, another movie that deals with exactly what you're talking about in terms of the time behind time is the movie Interstellar. Because mm. mm. in Interstellar, there's a section called the Tesseract Sequence. And the Tesseract Sequence is when the central character is looking back at the life of his daughter. And he's looking through a bookcase and he's seeing her whole life in a single moment. And the only way that uh, Christopher Nolan, the director, could show this idea is to show different levels of movement in different ways. 
Now again, this is to do, it's called a tesseract sequence for a specific reason. Because a tesseract is, you have, say, it, it's dealing with dimensions in space and time. So you have a point, say you have a point particle, or a point, a pencil point. If you move in one dimension, you draw a line. So you have a straight line, that's one dimension. If you then go at right angles from that line, and you go round, you end up with a, a square, don't you? Then if you go right angles from the square, you end up with a cube. If you then go right angles from the corners of the cube, you get what's called a tesseract. Now, a tesseract exists in what's called orthogonal space. Orthogonal space is a mathematical structure whereby it's another dimension of space and time that adjoins this that we can't perceive because we are programmed to only exist in a three-dimensional space. But as philosophers have argued and scientists have been arguing, why is there only three dimensions and the fourth dimension of time? Why is there only three? Why does there need to be three? According to um, uh, string theory, there's what, 11 or 13? Mm. It so, changes, but yes. Yeah, so in fact, what we're talking here about is time just part of this. There is, our brains are programmed for us to perceive and exist in what I argue is called, the, I call it the Bohmian IMAX. We exist in a simulation. This is a simulation. And we are in a simulation and our senses are programmed for us to literally exist within a linear simulation. But outside of the simulation, within the Tesseract, within an additional dimensions of space and time, there exists other realities. But we can't see them. We're like Ed, Edward Abbott in his book Flatland. We're like, <laughs> yes. we're, like, we're like the flat person in that. Yep, two-dimensional we world, see. yeah. Yeah, we can only perceive in the dimensional space we exist within. This is what our brains program us to do. Well, Anthony, there, speaking of time, it is it has disappeared rapidly, and we oh want to no. give you yes. <laughs> I always feel like we're just beginning with you. Well, expect a number of invitations to come back very soon. But yeah, tell know. us again about your website, your books, very quickly, and where people can find out more. Okay, fine. Website is anthonypeak.com. That's Anthony with an H, and it's P-E-A-K-E dot com. Um, I'm act very active on Facebook. Um, I'm at my 5,000 limit, but you can still follow me. Um, I post on there regularly, as you know, and I post ideas and thoughts. I'm also regularly speaking in the UK, um, doing quite a few events. I'm doing an event tomorrow, which, of course, people probably, if they're listening in the UK, I'm doing an event in Bristol tomorrow night. I'm also doing a, an event in London. Again, I did a, a talk a couple of days ago in London. We had over 100 people turn up. I'm going to be doing another talk in London uh, in, in February. Um, just join in. I have an international community of everybody. We've got quantum physicists on there. We've got neurologists. We've got neurochemists on there. We're all involved. It's, it's all a big exercise here trying to, to really understand by using science, not crazy ideas, yes. but by using science because that's the way forward. And that's how we deal with the skeptics. You just play them at their own game. Yep. Mm. It's outstanding. Anthony, thank you so much. We'll be in Indeed. touch today. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much. Good. Wonderful thank to you. talk to you as ever. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, Ben, take it away. Alrighty. So, on that note, now that we are down to the wire here, uh, for any of your strange friends, family members, uh, whoever that tend to, uh, you know, go towards the weird and unexplained, uh, try giving autographed copies of our books. Um, at least our, our, our latest titles include Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal 2. 
Bigfoot, Mothman, and uh, monsters you have never heard of. Uh, they're available on, from online retailers and in some stores. Uh, but you can get autographed copies from our website, BehindTheParanormal.com. Right, and on only a few weeks, on February 16th, it's a Saturday, we'll be at the 4th Annual Book Lovers Author Expo at the Cumberland Public Library in Rhode Island uh, from 1 to 4 p.m. Uh, there'll be other southeastern New England authors as well, both fiction and nonfiction. And we'll not make a presentation, but we will meet and greet and sign books. Information is at cumberlandlibrary.org. Hope to see you there. Then on April 23rd at 1 p.m., uh, we'll be back at the uh, Town of Prospect Senior Center in, in uh, Connecticut for a uh, presentation, and we'll keep you posted on the details as that develops. And that is open to the public. It's a beautiful and large facility, uh, a large audience last time. Uh, hot on the trail of that event is a new one we're especially excited about, not only because we won't have to drive for hours to get there. It's the X-Filers United 2019 Convention set for April 26th to 28th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Warwick, Rhode Island. It's wow, when's the last time we did an event in Rhode Island? <laughs> I know, I just, I don't know, I don't know, people appreciate us around here. It's, anything, it's a fan convention covering all areas of the uh, paranormal and uh Check it out. Uh, the website is x-filersunited.com. We'll be talking more about that as, as it comes. Uh, events later this year will include Nashua, New Hampshire Public Library in August, Exeter UFO Festival, Greater New England UFO Conference, great stuff there every year. Uh, my next book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeist, Parasites, and Parallel Worlds, and God, uh, will be published in hardcover this fall, and we'll keep you posted on that. Oh, yes, okay. and uh, also in the works is a third book that we're writing together. Uh, this one will be on the subject of UFOs uh, Beyond the Assumptions. Uh, you can check out our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and you can find over 800 uh, free recorded shows from our 10-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And uh, check out our website, too, for a link to the charities Ben and I have adopted. Uh, these are people we know. Know, and we know that they're good charities. USACares.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. What do we got next week, Ben, uh, for in uh, in store? Yes, so on February 3rd, uh, we uh, here on WON, 1240 AM and 99.3 FM, will welcome back the great Alejandro Rojas uh, for the latest on what's happening in UFO news. And our quote uh, is from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.